Let's turn to Matthew chapter 15 again. Matthew chapter 15, if you need to use the Bible in the pulpit or the pew in front of you, that's on page 976. And let's just read this together. I invite you to stay seated uh, as, we, as, uh, as I read aloud. And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put, him, they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, and when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we gonna get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. So directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having give thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full and, and of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. As you know, um, I am in a, in a school program right now working toward, uh, working toward a doctorate. And, and let me just share with you, maybe this has happened to you before if you've written a personal letter or those of you involved in academics, maybe you've written a paper. And uh, you know how you're, do you wanna know how to know you're having a bad day when you're, right in, when you're in school? You wanna know how you know this? Um, I woke up. One morning, I was getting a paper ready. This happened about three weeks ago. And I was getting the presentation ready for the in-persons in Kansas City that I went to recently. And, uh, and sometimes you wake up and you just have this flash of insight. You know, there's creative work is, is really, is kind of different. You have to kind of get in that flow, that creative flow going, you know, so that the creative juices are running. And, and, and boy, it was running this morning. And I couldn't wait to go upstairs to my house to, to sit down at my laptop and start writing and writing. And man, I'm telling you, it, it came easy. And I was just typing away. I typed about a page and a half on this thought and, and thought to myself, man, this is, this is it. This is, this is great. If I can keep this all day long, I'm gonna get done early. And this is gonna be really awesome. And so when I was done with that thought, I, uh, I, I started to kind of read it in conjunction with the rest of the paper to make sure it fit the argument. And come to find out, I had that exact thought two weeks ago, and I had already written it in the paper. So I wasted about two hours of my time. Granted, I wrote it better, so it wasn't a total waste. I just put it where it was before, but... Uh, but yeah, that's how you know you're having a bad day whenever, uh, whenever you write the same paragraph twice. And uh, for some of you, maybe you're reading this, this section of Matthew or maybe you've, written it, you've read it before and you kind of thought to yourself, maybe something similar just happened to Matthew. Because as we read through that story, I imagine you probably cannot help but to think 
that didn't we just read this? And the fact is, is that this story is remarkably similar to another story that took place not even a chapter ago when Jesus fed the 5,000. And in fact, it is, it is so similar, remarkably similar to Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. A few of the details are different, but, but it is mostly the same. It's so much similar, even down to some of the very wording, that uh, to be honest with you, I, I really was unsure how to approach it this morning because we are inevitably going to talk about some of the same themes that we talked about just a few weeks ago. In fact, I don't have a PowerPoint this morning. I told Mark, really, in all honesty, you could probably show the same PowerPoint that we said a, a few weeks ago. And, and, I, and I just didn't wanna really do that. I, I don't wanna you know, kind of double up on that. In fact, it is so similar that most of your, even some evangelical scholars today, think that really there was only one miraculous feeding of a crowd and that Matthew is recording two different versions of it, kind of two different traditions of it that came down to him. That's, that's the majority thought today. Of course, we can debunk that immediately if you go to Matthew chapter 16 and verses nine and 10. Uh, Jesus is kind of uh, getting on to the disciples for misunderstanding something he says. And he says, you know, do you not remember when I fed the 5,000? Do you not remember when I fed the 4,000? And so Jesus acknowledges both feedings, both miracles. So I think I'm gonna take his view over some modern skeptic's view today. But it, but it does, it, it does kind of bring up a legitimate question though. Because if these feedings are so similar, then why did Matthew feel the need to record them both? I mean, Luke didn't. John didn't, and so why does Matthew, and, and Mark does as well, so why do they feel the need to tell us about both of them, especially if you have some of the same themes coming out of it? Again, I'll, I'll admit, I was, I, was, I was very unsure, even yesterday, I was still wrestling with how do I approach this in a way that's just not doubling up from a couple of weeks ago. And so even down to some of the very same wording, but there must be something. We have a high view of scripture here and we know that every word that is included in the word of God is given for our edification, is given for our building up, is given for the strengthening of the church, strengthening of our people, the building of our faith. We know that every word that is given is profitable for, the, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I'll get that out in a minute. And we know that all of it is profitable for those things. So if Matthew wanted to include both feedings, then there is a reason why he wanted to do that. And it is a reason that we need to attend to today. And so this morning, as we look at it, we're gonna see that, that the setting that this is happening in is something that I think is very important to understanding what it is that Matthew wants us to see in this. And so let's just look at that setting for just a moment. Remember, what is it about the community of the disciple, Matthew in this entire section, beginning in 1353, going all the way through chapter 18, his concern here is the building of the church and explaining who the church is, what it is we are to do, and what we are about. 
And so there is something he wants us to know about the disciples' community, about the church, by including both of these feedings. And that's something that we need to, I think, as we see the similarities, when we notice the differences, we're gonna see that come out. So remember that a couple weeks ago before Logan preached, uh, we, you remember that Christ, we saw him in Tyre and Sidon, and we saw the healing of the Canaanite woman. And now he is leaving that area in verse 29, and he is going down by the Sea of Galilee. And you might be tempted to think that he's just going down to his normal area, but in fact, what's actually happening is he's walking down along the shoreline of the eastern shore of the sea, not the western shore. And how do we know that? because he's in an area that is called the Decapolis, and and Mark tells us that he's in that area. The word Decapolis, it means 10 cities. There were 10 major cities in that area, and those cities were Gentile-dominated. In fact, so much so that most of the time, Orthodox Jews would not go into that area because it was considered unclean. They would kinda, they would kinda, edge on it on the other side of the Jordan because the only area of Israel that was more unclean than the, than the Decapolis was Samaria, and they certainly didn't wanna go in Samaria. So they would go in there, but they would not go very far, typically. It was considered a very unclean area. In fact, we've, uh, we've come across this area before. Do you remember when Jesus cast out the demons of the man? and he cast them out into a herd of pigs. If you know anything about Israelites, you know that no Jew would be raising a herd of pigs, right? But what's happening there? It's happening in the Decapolis, and this is not a Jewish area. This is a Gentile area dominated by the Gentiles, and therefore, they're not keeping those laws. They don't care about those laws. It's, it's, a, it's a very Romanesque kind of area. Jesus would come to this area, but it is generally considered unclean. And so Christ, having gone to Tyre and Sidon, he, he was attempting to kind of get away and rest with his disciples. The Canaanite woman caused a stir. And so he goes down into this area. He goes into a mountainous kind of region and he finds a place to sit down and rest. But of course, he can't do that because now great crowds are coming to him again. Now, how did they find out about him? My guess is, if you remember, whenever he cast out the pigs, the, the man wanted to go with them, and he said, no, stay here and proclaim in the area all the things that God has done for you. I, I suspect that that man was somewhat successful. I also suspect that word of the Canaanite woman has probably gotten around as well, not to mention just the normal rumor, rumor mill, because some of these Romans do travel back and forth to uh, Galilee and Jerusalem and that kind of thing, and word is getting back to this area, and now he's here, and guess what? These people are suffering as much as the Jews are suffering. And so once again, you see this massive crowd of 4,000 men minus women and children. You see this massive crowd coming to Christ. And we saw how he reacted to the Canaanite woman. That's kind of an unusual reaction, but Christ was doing something. But now an entire crowd of Gentiles are coming to him. And, they, and the question is, how is he gonna react? What is he gonna do? And what will we see?
And the first thing we'll see is his power. His power. Look in verse 30. And when great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, they put him at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the, and the blind seeing. This is not just a, a regular miracle summary because Matthew's wording here is very specific. In fact, if you go back uh, just a few verses before, you find out that you know he could have just said, like for example, in Matthew 14, 35, he says that, uh, and when the men of that place recognized him, they brought him all who were sick. And Matthew could have done that. He could have just said they brought to him a lot of people who were sick. But he doesn't. He, he names these four specific ailments, those who are lame, those who are crippled, those who are, uh, what else did he say? He said um, those who are lame, blind, crippled, and mute. And so why is he specifically putting these together in this order? There seems to be something he wants us to notice here. And what you will find is that that wording is reminiscent. It actually goes back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35 is, the, is kind of the end of that first section of prophecy. Now, now Isaiah is gonna give us four chapters of narrative about King Hezekiah that leads us through uh, Isaiah 39. But in Isaiah 35, uh, Isaiah is, is ending out the prophecies mostly about judgment from Israel but then he's ending this prophecy with this note of hope that when God comes and when he establishes his kingdom, in fact, look at this passage, beginning in verse four, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God, he will come and save you, and listen to this, the eyes of the blind will be open. The, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so what is happening is Matthew is drawing back on this exact language of the kingdom promises. That those who are lame, those who are mute, those who are deaf and those who are crippled they and those who are blind, they will have their disabilities restored. In other words, it's the reversal of the curse. It's the reversal of sin. It's the reversal of all of the things that sin brought into the world, all of the suffering, all of the deformity, all of the things in our life that doesn't make sense God, according to Isaiah, is going to bring them all and he is going to restore them all. And what Matthew is doing here is that he is using this language in order to show us that the kingdom promises that were given through God to the nation of Israel, those are being referred to here, but they're being referred to not in reference to Jews, but in reference to Gentiles. In fact, look how specific he is in verse 31. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. It's, it's an exact word-for-word -word reversal 
of their ailments. In other words, the effects of the curse are being reversed and Christ is the one who came to conquer on our behalf. He is reversing the fall and he's bringing the kingdom to his people. The kingdom of God has come and it's come in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul can say so confidently that no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is there in life that can take us away from Christ? What is there in life that can move us out of his kingdom? What is there in life that can remove us from our vital union with him? What are some things that might try? Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation? No, Christ has conquered it all. And in all, we are more than conquerors through those things that come to us in life. So beloved, some of you may be suffering right now. Some of you may, maybe it's the consequences of your own sin. Maybe it's things that have happened in your life because others have sinned against you. Maybe it's due to a sickness or maybe it's due to heartache. Beloved, what Matthew is doing here is giving you a perspective that Christ has conquered, the, the reversal of the fall, the reversal of the sufferings of this world has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not just available to the Jews, but it's available to everyone. It's available to everyone. So how can you keep a perspective on this? First, realize that whatever it is you're going through in life, Christ has conquered it. Christ has conquered it whether it is the repercussions of your own sin, whether it is the effects of someone else's sin against you, maybe it's a sickness or a disease that you're going through, maybe it's heartache or depression or anxiety, whatever it is, the first thing you recognize is that Christ has conquered it all and you are more than conquerors through Christ who loves you who has conquered all of that for you. Whatever it is you're enduring, maybe it's harassment at school, that is defeated in Christ. Maybe it's a disease you've been, you have, that is defeated in Christ. Everything you're going through that is, that is wrong, that is an effect of the curse, it is conquered in Jesus Christ. The kingdom has come. And so just as the song says, we can rest in him. We don't rest in the hope that by going through certain procedures or certain whatever, it might go away. It might go away and, and praise God when it does, but praise God when it doesn't because Christ has conquered it all. No matter how long it lasts, no matter how long it is. Second, what sins or flaws have Christ revealed to you in the process? How have you responded sinfully to this thing? Maybe like Job, there's some things in your life that through this bout of suffering, God wants to expose in you. He wants to show you a part of your heart that needs to be reconciled to God, that needs to be sanctified, that you never would have seen had it not been for this suffering. 
So what sin or what, what flaws have you noticed in your character through this process? Confess those. And third, how do the scriptures teach me to obey in the midst of this that's going on? How do the scriptures teach me to glorify Christ in the midst of my suffering? We don't, we don't wait until the suffering's gone and say, okay, Lord, as long as you take this away, then I will worship you, then I will thank you, then I will, I will praise you. No, how do we glorify Christ now? How do we glorify him in the midst of suffering? How do we glorify him when all the earth around us is, is falling apart, is going wrong? That's what we're looking for. That's what we wanna ask. What commands does he give? What principles does he give to follow? What examples are there in the scripture to pay attention to? Beloved, don't take what God would use to draw you closer to him, to make you more like Christ. Don't take that and use it as an excuse to go away from him. Don't take it and use it as an excuse to depart from him. Don't use it as an excuse to disobey him. Whatever it is he's brought into your heart, whatever it is he's brought into your life, he's doing it for your good and his glory. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Obey your Lord and, and in it and watch how he uses it for his glory and for your ultimate good. Your ultimate good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's good right now. Never said that. No one ever said that. But we can thank the Lord for it because there's a confidence that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And so let's get back to the story here. We see his power, but we also see his compassion. In verses 32 and 34, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. That term is, always, is only used three times in Matthew, that term compassion, and, and, it, and it, all three times it refers, to, it refers to when Christ is looking at a crowd and he sees them, that they're like sheep without a shepherd, that they're, that they're suffering, that they're starving, and he has compassion for them. You know, it's one thing if you have the power to, take, to, to make something better, but you have no compassion to actually drive you to do it. And so we see Christ has both the power and the compassion. And unlike last time, this is a slight difference, but Christ initiates the issue this time. I suspect his disciples, because they're, they're still growing, right? They're still in process. So his disciples are sitting around and all these Gentiles start coming up. You know, before they, before they saw all the Jewish brothers and sisters coming up and, and they're being healed and all that and, uh, and it's getting late and, and they start to be concerned about them and they go to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, these, you know, it's getting late and these guys are, are weak, they're hungry, they need to go. Uh, you notice they don't initiate this time. They don't initiate this time. They, I, I suspect that they're just kind of ready to get out of there because uh, this is not a comfort zone for them. This is not a place they want to be. Now, that's, now, don't take that dogmatically. I'm just kind of using some sanctified imagination there. But, but, but I suspect that Christ this time initiates because he's the one that has compassion for them, maybe, maybe a little bit more than the disciples. And he says, you know, I have compassion for these guys. They've been with me now. He's been doing this for three days. 
All of their daily provisions are gone. They've gone through it all now. And, and by the way, the eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee is rocks and desert, and, and it's, a very, it's a very rough area. And so not just a ton of places to go. And so he says, I don't wanna send them away hungry lest they would faint on the way. And the disciples, they say, well, where are we gonna get, where's there gonna be a place for them to eat? Where are we gonna get food for them? By the way, this is one of the reasons why people think this is just a different version of, a, of the same tradition. Because after all, why, why would they have to ask this question if they just witnessed Christ feed 5,000? If he can do that to 5,000, surely he can do it to 4,000. But read it carefully. Because you remember last time, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And their question was, well, where are we gonna buy it? <laughs> There's nowhere to buy the food around here. Where are we gonna get it? This time, Jesus says, I don't wanna leave them away, they're hungry. And they say, well, there's nowhere to get food, Jesus, what are we gonna do? So again, just read it carefully and you'll see there's really no reason to deny Matthew's version here. He's not willing to send them away hungry and his disciples simply say, there's, we just don't have enough money. And much like last time, Jesus once again asked them what they have. The number's a little different, but it's the same. A typical daily provision, a few small fish and about seven loaves, small loaves of bread. But the point is the same, that Jesus' compassion is prompting him to action. And his compassion is prompting his disciples to action, but they're recognizing that they don't have the resources to do anything. So they'll have to rely on something else. I just think like, like Paul says, that the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We look out at the suffering of the world and we know that Christ has compassion toward it. Let me ask you this, are you compassionate toward those whom Christ is compassionate toward? You say, well, who is that, sinners? Sinners. Sinners who sin just like you and sinners who don't sin just like you, but they sin in other ways. And Christ is compassionate toward them all. Do the things that, that Christ is compassionate for prompt our desire to step in? Does the things that Jesus is compassionate about, does it prompt us to wanna stand in the gap? Does it prompt us to want to do something? I imagine the disciples at this point have caught on enough. Jesus doesn't have to directly tell them what to do. They get the point. I have compassion toward them. Okay, Jesus, we get it. But there's nowhere out here. Where are we gonna get food? All we have are seven loaves and, and a few small fish. That's all we've got. They understand the point, they get it. And, and I suspect that, okay, Jesus, we get it. Yes, we want to help, but we just don't have the ability. We just don't have the ability. They still think they can't do it. And that's why we see Christ's provision. 
You see, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't have the ability, we don't have the resources, we don't have all of those things, but what we do have is Christ. And just like, just like Peter and John said, silver and gold have I none, but, but what I have I give to you in the name of Christ, rise up and walk. Beloved, we may not have silver and gold to give, but we have the provision of Christ. We have the ability to give what they actually need. We have the ability to meet those needs. Listen, it's so common. I go to churches today. I, I never will forget. There was uh, one church I visited, and 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 it's a big church, and they have the they have the people to do this. And I'm and I'm not making fun of them. I'm just kind of pointing this out that that uh, they had a they had a Sunday school class that was that was for. Ladies who are single mothers who are divorced under the age of 35. And that specificity toward that class just kind of cracked me up. I was like, well, what if you're 36? Yeah, I guess you can't go to that class. <laughs> but I got to thinking about that. I was like, you know, this church is big enough to where they, they can have specifics like that and they can have very specific, very targeted ministries and we may think that we cannot uh, help people because we don't have the resources to offer what every single person needs. Listen, beloved, I'm gonna tell you a little secret. Neither did that church. They've got the people to fill in those kind of gaps like that. But no matter how many people, no matter how many resources, no matter how much money, they did not have what those people really needed. Only Christ has it. And listen, we cannot give you, we cannot meet you all, meet all of your needs. We can't do that. So guess what? We're not even gonna try. But what we are gonna do is we're gonna introduce you to the one who can meet all your needs. And we're going to imitate him in your life. And we're going to disciple you to know him better. We're going to teach you to know his truth. We're gonna teach you to live in a way that in light of what you believe, and we're gonna teach you to share that faith with others so that you will know him, that you will live for him, and that you will share him with others. So that's what Jesus does here. It's Again, it's identical language. Jesus directs them to sit down. He takes the loaves. He gives thanks. He breaks them. He passes them to the disciples. Identically, the people eat and are satisfied. And identically, there is abundance left over. And we see the count slightly less, but it's still a miracle nonetheless. 4,000 men and including women and children as well. So... So again, why such a similar story? Why is, why is Matthew giving us both of these? I want you to just look at this for a moment. Let's go back and look at something. I've, I've focused on the crowd at the beginning because that was different, but as far as the feeding itself, so much of it is the same. The feeding miracle itself is remarkably similar. similar. So, I mean, Matthew could have skipped this one but he doesn't, why not? Because remember, Matthew is writing to new Christians, probably at the church of Antioch, that according to our best guess, that's not precise, but our best guess, based on the evidence. 
He's writing this as a discipleship manual. And the church in Antioch, just imagine, these are mostly Hellenistic Jews and mostly Gentiles that are coming into this church. You know, the missionary efforts kind of went out of Antioch. That's where Paul was sent from. That's where Barnabas was sent from and all those others. You say, why, does, why is he including this? Because look back at verse 31. What do we see there? If you want proof positive that, that this, is, this is being done for, a, a, for Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, look at verse 31. At the end of verse 31, it says, and they glorified the God of Israel. Why would Matthew need to say that? Because if it's Israelites he's talking about, then he would just say they're God, Right? But he doesn't do that. He says, they glorified the God of Israel. In other words, these are Gentiles. And what does that mean? Why does he say that? Because this crowd is not Jewish. He's in a Gentile area dominated by Gentile or at best Jews who have completely abandoned the law. And why is he doing it? Because this was always God's intention. It was always God's intention. You look back at the call of Abraham, and what does he say? He says, I will bless you, I will bless them who bless you, I will curse them who curse you, and all the nations will be blessed through you. Understand, that is fulfilled in Christ. That is fulfilled in Christ. And all through Christ, all the nations, through the seed, singular seed, all the nations will become the children of Abraham, that all the nations will be blessed in him. And there's a pattern throughout the scriptures that we see. Like, for example, Moses parted the Red Sea. Yet in Joshua chapter three, verse 16, Joshua, when he's crossing the Jordan River, what does he do? He parts the Jordan River. And what, why does he do that? To show that it is God's continued leadership, that God, just as God had chosen Moses, now God had chosen Joshua. In 2 Kings chapter two, in verse eight, Elijah takes his tunic and he rolls it up and he hits the water and the water splits and he and Elisha walk through it. And Elisha says, let me have a double portion of your spirit. <coughs> and you know the story, swing low, sweet chariot, you know, it takes, it takes uh, Elijah away. His cloak falls down. Elisha takes it. He's walking back, comes that same river. What does he do? He rolls it up, slaps water, it parts. What's the point? To show that the same spirit that enabled Elijah is now in Elisha. There's a continuity there. In the book of Acts, there are three Pentecost, not one. There are three Pentecost. The first one is the popular one. It happens in chapter two the Jewish Pentecost. But then in chapter eight, the gospel goes to Samaria and we see the pouring out of the spirit in Samaria. And then in chapter 10, the gospel goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, and we see the pouring out of the spirit with Cornelius, who was there all three times. Peter. And I'm kind of getting into something that Jesus says to him next week, but just as a, just as a preview, let me ask you, what would have happened if 
someone other than Peter or maybe, some, maybe a Samaritan or maybe a Gentile would have gone and was there and supervised and superintended the pouring out of the Spirit on those people, what would have happened? We would have had three churches. We would have had a Jewish church, a Samaritan church, and a Gentile church. Peter is there for all three of them. Why? To show that there is one church. And it includes everyone. So beloved, why does Matthew record feeding of the 5,000 to Jews, feeding of the 4,000 to Gentiles? Why does he do that? To show that there is not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. To show that there is one church. And the same promises that God has given to Israel, he gives to the church, to his people, both Jews and Gentiles. There is only one. There's not a a Jewish church, a Gentile church, an African church, an American church, a, a Canadian church. I mean, we use those to describe demographics and such, sure, but beloved, there is only one church and it is Jesus' church. And the only way you come into it is through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we all need those promises because we are all in the same boat. That we are all sinners. We are all in need of his mercy and grace. And when Christ came and died on the cross, he did not only die for the sins of the Jews, he died for the sins of the world. And aren't you glad for it? Because how many of us in here are Jews? To my knowledge, none of us are. We are, we are the 4,000. We're not the five. We are the Gentiles. We are the Decapolis. We're not Jerusalem. We are Athens. We are not Jerusalem. We are the man on the island. And the gospel came to us, and it is the exact same message that Jesus gave to the Jews when he was here. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek. That's you and me. There's a, a wonderful passage uh, in Philippians chapter one. Kind of goes with a passage that uh, don't normally go together. But he says in verse six that I am sure of this, that Christ who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And you may ask, what does that completion look like? How does it, what does it, what does it look like? What's it gonna be like? Thankfully, we don't have to ask that question. We can go to Revelation chapter seven and we see it. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine says, 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white ropes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beloved, this is your future. This is you. This is where you come in in eternity you are one of the great ones who, who cannot be numbered. You are one of the ones whose robes have been washed. You are one of the ones who now salvation that belongs to the Lord has come to you. And Paul has every confidence in Christ that what he has begun in you, he will bring it to completion. Beloved, you will reach Revelation chapter seven, verse nine and 10. You will get there because the same promises Jesus gave to Israel all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout now the new, Christ has given to his church. And he now promised you this, that you are his. You are now his people. So one of the things I like to tell people is that my confidence is not in you. I have no confidence in Calvary Baptist Church. Boy, you always wanted to hear your pastor say that, didn't you? <laughs> hear me out, don't tune me out. <laughs> I have no confidence in Calvary Baptist Church. I have no confidence in Steve Wood. I have no confidence in Roy Cartwright or not even Stefan. Definitely not Melissa. <laughs> But I tell you, I have confidence for them. Why? Because my confidence is in Christ. Do you see that difference? My confidence is in Christ. Therefore, I can have every confidence for you. And I have every confidence for Calvary Baptist Church. Because... What Christ has begun in you, he will bring to completion. We will reach Revelation chapter seven. That will be us one day. We will be in that crowd. And until then, Christ, what he began, he is completing in us. And that's the promises we have in him. If you don't know Christ this morning, you don't have those promises you can before you leave here, and I would love to talk to you about it. Let's close in prayer, and we'll have just a moment of silent reflection, and then it'll be time to eat. But the invitation is open. I'll be here. If you wanna come and talk, you can be a conqueror through Christ who loves you. And I would love to show you how. Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for everyone who's here that in each and every one of us that who are in Christ, we are more than conquerors, Lord, that cancer has been conquered, that suffering has been conquered, that, conquered, that, that harassment at school has been, concert, has been conquered, that sickness, that disease, that heartache, depression, anxiety, all of it has been conquered in Jesus Christ. Father, make us more like Christ through it. And thank you for giving us the promises for in your grace finding us on the island and bringing them to us. 
Lord, may you be glorified and may you complete what you've started in us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and I'll just ask you to bow your head for just a moment, just for a second, because I know you're hungry. But I do ask you to pray just for a moment that if you are here this morning and uh, just ask, what, what is it that Christ is completing in me? Maybe, maybe you are going through suffering. Maybe you're going through sadness or, or guilt. Maybe it's the consequences of your own sin. Maybe it's the, someone else's sin against you. Maybe it's just heartache. Maybe you're missing a loved one or maybe you're, maybe you're just going through a hard time. What is Christ conquering in you through that? What is Christ completing in you to make you more like him? That's the purpose of it all. And I can't tell you about the specific timing or what the specific purposes are, but I can tell you this, what Christ has started in you. Even in this thing you're going through now, he will bring it to completion. And it's gonna look just like Revelation 7, verses nine and 10. I'll just ask you to reflect on that for just a moment as our ladies play.